Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello. Hello. It's such a strange moment here. I mean, this is the last nose that we will do before we possibly know our collective fate. I mean, I guess there's no guarantee that by next Friday we will know our collective fate, but we'll probably have a pretty good clue of it. So it seems so odd. I mean, it just feels like the world will be different the next time we do a version of this show. And and with that in mind, and also it's snowing. We're doing this at 1 o'clock on Friday, October 30th, and it's snowing. That's also weird. Um, and, and with that in mind, I think we've chosen well. We've decided to do two movies, each of which involves Sasha Baron Cohen, but in different ways. Of course, Borat uh, is his classic character. There's a new uh, Borat movie. We will tell you more about it in just a second. And then in the second part of the show, we'll talk about uh, Aaron Sorkin's depiction of the trial of the Chicago 7, in which Sasha Baron Cohen, Sasha Baron Cohen plays the role of Abby Hoffman. Um, and we kind of decided that's like all we want to talk about are th- those two movies. We had a bunch of s- secondary and tertiary topics and they just kind of didn't work. And I think it's good, too, because I, I also think these movies ask different versions of the same question, which is what kind of place is America? Uh, and is depravity in America a transient phenomenon or a permanent condition? I think they, the two filmmakers have very different answers to that question, but we'll come to that uh, right now. We will talk to uh, Jacques Lamar, playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine. Also, Mercy Quay, founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project uh, and a columnist for Hearst Connecticut Media Group, as am I, lest that ever be forgotten. Um, So uh, the movie is called, well, it's called Several Things. As Jonathan McNichol, our producer, points out, there actually are a number of titles that are constantly being revised all the way through. So the the final cut title, uh, you might say, is Borat, Subsequent Movie Film, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit of Once Glo- oh, No, there's not even a one. For Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. But, I mean, earlier the movie is called Borat, Gift of Sexy Monkey to Vice Premier Mikhail Pence for Make Benefit Recently Diminished Nation of Kazakhstan. So, for those of you who somehow or other have avoided familiarizing yourself with this franchise. Uh, it was launched first on the old Ali G TV show, then a movie in 2006 when the world was a very different place. And now uh, this movie uh, at all times, uh, Borat, the character played by Sasha Baron Cohen, is is a journalist, a self-styled journalist from the nation of Kazakhstan, uh, and he brings with him some horrific um, tendencies uh, that are both anti-Semitic uh, and misogynistic and lots of other things as well, uh, often for the purpose of revealing similar tendencies in other Americans, but sometimes for the purpose of discovering way better angels than himself in people. Uh, and I think that's a sort of consistent uh, theme in, in both movies. But uh, yeah, I just let's sort of begin by just talking about kind of, you know, whether this was uh, a thing that you enjoyed going through again. Or, or Mercy, because you are a young person, I, I, I realize 2006 is a long time ago. Did, did you watch the first Borat movie? 
I watched the first Borat movie, but I did not rewatch it for the show. I no, mean, not for necessarily. Um, and there are there are places with that in watching it this time around. I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. I remember this bit. Um, but it, there, nothing stood out to me. I, you know, in 2006 when I was watching it, it was never a thing that that for me was the cultural phenomenon that everyone else adopted it to be. Um, and it was sort of the slapstick comedy that I wasn't really into, right? Um, and so watching it this time around, what I will say is I'm a bit embarrassed by how much I enjoyed it this time <laughs> um, because I don't know if that means I'm regressing as a, an adult. Um, I think my favorite thing to do with the Borat, Borat movie is to decide who of the extras is my favorite extra. Um, and, I, you know, Janice Jones, the black babysitter, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think she won the show. She stole the show from me completely. And then there are a few of the women who are at the uh, the women Republican the Republican women's um, meeting later that uh, that episode uh, that that little sequence that (laughs) the one who sits back and says, "Well, we're so happy to have you here," and tries to cut the scene short. Um, (laughs) I, I think that what Borat did here in a time where we needed some detached, you know, sort of no strings attached laughs in 2020 was said, no, you don't get no strings attached laughs, right? You can laugh, but you're going to laugh about the things that are happening right now. Um, And for that, you know, it was two hours well spent. (laughs) <laughs> All right, there is a way in which he does kind of play his hits. Uh, we know from the previous movie that, yes, you can get a cooperative hardware store employee to have a long conversation with how many gypsies you can kill with this particular uh, canister of gas, and the person will, for some reason or other, never flinch or blanch at that idea. And we also know from the first movie and from this one that you can get people to sing along with you and sing really horrible and and uh, alarming things, uh, and <laughs> they will just keep singing. So we've seen these things before. Jacques, how about, how about you? How how was Borat a subsequent movie film this time? Uh, well, I had a friend come over and we watched it together. And, um, you know, we were roaring. You know, it, the, the big question of these movies ends up being whether or not they stand up to kind of repeat viewings because the ability to shock you is somewhat diminished after, you know, you've been surprised once. You, you know what's coming. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I, I think the first film is the better film. Um, but I, and I think that some of the larger messages he's trying to make about women with this film, um, don't really kind of land, uh, in a certain sense. Um, it felt like that's, you know, through the lens of his daughter, um, who's a character actually was surprised that I really enjoyed. Um, and the actress is wonderful. Uh, you know, I felt like it was more getting from bit to bit, um, but the bits hold up and it's, it's a very funny film and, you know, it, it's this, the rare thing where a piece of gross out comedy can also make, um, make some really salient points about who we are as a nation. Right. So we should say that, yeah, part of the movie is this kind of father-daughter journey. Uh, Maria Bakalova, uh, to an amazing degree, is able to kind of keep up with Sasha Baron Cohen's extremes uh, as he she plays his 15-year-old daughter. In real life, she is 24. Uh, 
Um, and and yeah, there are these moments where, you know, uh, I mean, Borat, who's a horrible, I mean, just extreme sexist pig uh, and who is dismayed to find out that he has a daughter or, as I think he puts it, a non-male son, um, he, he, and he doesn't know what to do with her and has been given some kind of strange Kazakh handbook. Uh, about raising daughters that is full of horrible information, uh, inaccurate information, including that obviously women are not allowed to drive, cannot drive, and would be frightening if they did drive, that vaginas have teeth. I mean, there's just sort of all this kind of dreadful stuff uh, in there. And and so, you know, Mercy, you've kind of already answered my next question, which is this movie often goes from very harsh to very sweet. You mentioned Janice Jones. Uh, she uh, plays uh, this woman who is... Uh, at least ostensibly hired to look after the daughter while Borat goes off and does whatever he's doing. And she becomes the conscience of the film, eventually kind of gives Borat a talking to uh, about his sexism. Uh, there's another amazing uh, character, Borat, uh, decide, Borat, who is a horrible anti-Semite, decides he wants to end his life. So he goes to a synagogue to, as he put, puts it, just wait for the next mass shooting. Uh, he goes dressed as a sort of almost Nazi parody of a Jew. Uh, and he encounters two older Jewish women in the synagogue who are very nice to him. And one of them even, you know, hugs him and kisses him at, at the end. There's quite a bit of debate going on about that. And her own, she died, uh, the woman died after the filming. Her own family is kind of divided about how to feel about all this. But, you know, so one of the questions, this is a long wind up to a question, Mercy, but, you know, can the movie successfully go from these really kind of harsh, sharply, extremely drawn uh, revelations of depravity to a, a sweetness, a sweetness between Borat and some of the nicer Americans he meets, and ultimately maybe a sweetness between Borat and his daughter. Yeah, I, so I think it's the stories behind these interactions that answers that question for me. Um, I don't know that the the film on its own, independent of the, story, the background stories of each of these characters, does it. I think, you know, as a viewer, what I am doing in the moment is you know, he's, he took us on a complete ride. I am cringing, right? Go to the synagogue and wait for the next mass shooting. Left me very, like, I'm, I'm in a room and I don't actually want to look at anyone. And by anyone, I mean my husband and my dog. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't really want to interact with, with that line. Um, and right. I think that the Rudy Giuliani scene and the Jews will not replace us cake writing scene, right? Those were, those are incredibly cringy moments because these are, mo these are moments that are um, happening. Like you said, to in with real people in real time, these are the real reactions from the people. And so I actually went and found some of the stories in the background. Um, the Jewish woman who sort of embraces Borat, um, you know, her, her family is conflicted at the moment to, uh, to, uh, with what to do with the, with the film. Um, and like you mentioned, she, she, she since passed since the filming, the other one, um, Denise Jones, she was paid for her role, um, uh, was paid $3,500, um, and was told that they were writing a documentary. They were doing a documentary on, um, they were doing, I forget what, what sort of documentary she thought she was signing up for, but she didn't know what's being reported now is that she didn't know it was a Borat film. And so her pastor in the wake of it um, 
posted a a GoFundMe page uh, to to raise funds for Janice Jones because you know just like everyone else, almost everyone else in the country, um, she is financially impacted by the virus. Um, then there are the two. Um, Yes, I know what you're going to say. Yes, continue. (laughs) The two, like, you know, uh, happened upon roommates. Um, uh, Colin, can you remind me where he said that that was being filmed? Was that what, because those those two gentlemen, he actually, he actually stayed for five days with these two gentlemen in, um, holed up in their, in their house uh, in Washington. I don't remember where the film said they were, they were. I think it is clear that they're in Washington state in the film, but I I could be wrong about that. So yeah, these guys are, so one of the questions that runs through all of this is, yeah, who knew what, who's been told things. I mean, if for example, the woman in the synagogue at some point, uh, was briefed about what was going on, which is one narrative I've heard. Then the moment when she turns to him and hugs him and gives him a kiss on the cheek, is a very different thing than if, you know, with nothing other than the presentation made by this horrible character, she somehow are able to get pa- really able to get past her true revulsion uh, and, and, and hug and hug him. With these guys, I think it's a big question, too, because they are these QAnon supporting weirdos who think that Hillary Clinton drinks the blood of children to get adrenaline or something. Uh, and, but they're also kind of nice, you know, they're pleasant. Uh, and so, I don't think so, they said drinks the blood of children. I said, I think he said eats her, eats their adrenal glands. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, I want to get this right. Yeah, <laughs> I stand corrected, but you know, Jacques, obviously there's other people who brought this up. There's questions here. I mean, they're, hold up for five days, hiding out from the early COVID outbreak with this stranger, plus any number of technical, you know, TV lighting people. I don't know how many people it takes to shoot those scenes, but they can't be under. I mean, you just sort of wonder what impression those guys could possibly be under about what was going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you were talking about how how things pivot from a sweetness to uh you know, shocking. Um, you think about when Borat goes into the synagogue, he's saying shocking and horrifying things. And it turns out to be this very sweet scene. Um, and then he goes into lockdown with these two QAnon supporters. And oddly, they've taken him into their home. And they're in. I mean, how many of us would take in someone for five days from another country that we just met. Um, and so, you know, I look at those at that moment and then they turn around and say, they're saying the horrifying things and uh, the bits that Borat is doing about like trying to kill the virus with a frying pan is hilarious. And, you know, I like when you think about how, Sasha Baron Cohen had to commit to that character for five days straight. He could probably never break character unless he was in a different room. Um, is pretty stunning to me as a you know as someone who knows that he you know that he had to improv for those five days. And and you do wonder how they write off the presence of a camera crew. I'm right. sure they edited it all out. But yeah, I, I have a lot of questions about that. So. Mercy, you've already once again kind of indicated that, yes, there are moments where the movie is just going too far, pushing too far to make its point. But 
at least in the circumstances we just described, the one the synagogue scene, he does have a point. He has a clear point to make about anti-Semitism on those rare moments when Sasha Baron Cohen isn't in character. He's very serious about the issues of anti-Semitism and has important things to say about them in interviews. Um, but there are times when I don't really see a point. And so this this is not a spoiler, I promise you. There's a sort of debutante's ball that he and his uh, daughter attend, uh, and she is having her period and they do a kind of a Kazakh dance for the the people encircling them, these uh, dressed up people going to this ball that really kind of involves the revelation of her bloodstained legs and underpants. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the people you kind of feel sorry for the, the people aren't reacting in a way that we wouldn't react in. I probably would have run out of the room faster than most of them did. And you kind of wonder, well, What's the point here? Just to be as yeah. gross as possible, or is there something else going on? I, I oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, go for it. Uh, I mean, to me, when you look at what is the purpose of a debutante ball, it's supposed to be this passage, uh, you know, rite of passage for young girls becoming women, and they're being presented into society, and it's very clear that it's for the delectation of men. And, and so when you think about her undergoing what they call her moon blood in the, in the, uh, which I'm never going to call my cycle anything else, but moon blood from here on out, it is so unbroken for me. (laughs) I mean, it's like, are you willing to embrace everything, what it means, you know, that it means to be a woman. And, you know, when Borat is telling, you know, asks another father, uh, at this, you know, how much would you pay for my daughter? And the guy answers, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and you know, it to me. So I think that there is, you know, there is that moment where it is kind of that, that's the equivalent moment from the first film where um, Borat and Azamat are running through the hotel naked. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the most kind of extreme and you, you sort of wonder, all right, you know, is this just for shock and just for laugh? But as I, you know, think about the larger points that he's trying to make about how America views women, um, you know, that audience at the at the debutante ball got, you know, a very clear message in, in a certain sense. Right. Um, but it was through gross out humor. I, yeah, I, 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 I thought that's that... very, very. That's a very smart take. I, I think I, I hadn't taken it that far to uh, to the point of the kind of commodification of a debutante ball. Yeah, Mercy, go ahead. Yeah. And I think that um, for me, there's a clear line of how um, how he treats sort of what we might see as uh, underserved or marginalized identities in the film where the, you know, um, the Jewish women and um, the babysitter, right, the black woman. I think that his comedy there is more what I would call right. um, uh, Satirical empathy. Um, uh, or maybe the other way around, empathetic <laughs> satire, right? Um, whereas all of the rest of it feels like it's mocking a particular uh, I- ideology, right? I mean, the story behind the debutante fall is interesting as well because they paid each of those um, fathers and daughters $50 to be extras in a documentary about debutante balls um, and to to sort of stage the appearance of it being 
um, uh, them crashing one, right? They they hired all of these people and um, you know told them what to wear, didn't give them more, much more information than that. Um, and so they were able to capture the real life shock there. Um, but it, for me, in the same way that they did here and, and similar to um, the abortion clinic, it felt as though they were just making fun of these ideologies in a way that was clearly different than how they approached um, the comedy with the Jewish women and the black women. Mm. Yeah. Although I would say, you know, when you look at who, who is, he is seeking to expose um, in terms of the, the ugliest part of America, um, and I think it's very clear, you know, Trump's America is what's, you know, what's on trial here. Uh, when you look at um, the people who are most apt to be anti-Semitic or opposed to Black Lives Matter, it's the people he's skewering. So leavening, not necessarily leavening, but by showing, um, uh, you know, the two most sympathetic moments in the film being with the Black babysitter and the Jewish women in the synagogue, um, he's clearly showing who are the better people right. in yeah, America. I, I do find myself wondering, you know, what's going on with some of these other people. Uh, we've now alluded to this a few times, but at one point he goes to get a cake and he asks the woman to decorate the cake, the big shock woman, to write, uh, Jews will not replace us, which she, without blinking, does. Uh, it just comes uh, squirting out of her cake decorating tool, like the kind of sentiment that squirts out of, uh, of Borat when he suggested in the first place. But there's almost a sense that people, you see, I, I don't necessarily think of that woman as anti-Semitic. I just don't think she's anti-anti-Semitic. You know, there's like a way mm -hmm. in which she was happy enough to decorate the cake the way any idiot asks her to do it. Okay. Uh, and she doesn't have the kind of core belief set that would make her say, well, under no circumstances can I write this on a cake. But I sort of wonder where she is, where between those two things she is. And and as Stephen Metcalf suggested on Slate Culture Gabfest, that could be an important question after Tuesday, you know? Like, yeah. who are all the people who went along with this stuff? And, and to what degree are they rotten to the core? And to what degree are they just willing to go along with stuff and, and, and persuadable to, you know, to to go along with things that are appalling. Yeah, Mercy, I can tell you got something to say about this. There's two things. Uh, uh, one, I think, you know, most of the Nazis were just uh, taking orders, just following orders, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. I, I think I think the, the, the issue of just following orders or harm by inaction have really been solved, right? We, we that is a conversation that has been settled. Um, you cannot consider yourself a good person if you are, if you are just not bad right so that's one thing but i'm willing to give her a break because of something you mentioned earlier i'm wondering how her willingness to write right her lack of even hesitation to write um what she was instructed you know came from being paid to do so mm -hmm. yeah um, we should play a little clip just so you get a sound of it for those of you who have never heard Barat. This is sort of part of the setup of the movie. Uh, you hear Sasha Baron, Baron Cohen uh, and Donny Popescu as the premier of Kazakhstan uh, explaining basically what, what the premise of the movie is. I was blamed for Kazakhstan's failure and banned from ever make reportings again. I was publicly humiliated. Oh, 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 oh. 
I was sentenced for life to hard labor in Gulag. But 14 years later, men from government bring me to presidential palace. He explained that while I was in Gulag, USNA was ruined by an evil man who stood against all American values. His name? Barack Obama. This led to other Africans becoming political leaders. But then a miracle occurred. A magnificent new premier named McDonald Trump rose to power and made America great again. He also became buddies with tough guy leaders across the world. Putin, Kim Jong-un, Bolsonaro, and Kenneth West. <laughs> that would be Kanye West. So, yes, there's something. I just want to say, well, I guess we have to go to break, I'm being told. I did, one, of the, one thing I wanted to, two things I wanted to say about it, and they're just sort of things to chew on, I guess. You know, the landscape has changed a lot. Uh, in 2006, uh, Borat was kind of teasing out and revealing these kind of pockets of depravity. The depravity in America is no longer contained in pockets. It's actually, you know, pretty strongly competing to be mass culture. Uh, and, and so you see it uh, in, in a lot of places here. And it's just a different world. It's a world where Barad is recognized on the street as the character that he is. Uh, there's new challenges. The, the other one I wanted to say is, for me anyway, and I, I'd like to get your reactions before we go to break. For me, I found watching the whole movie kind of a lot. It's just a long time to be with this, you know, horribly clueless, uh, tremendously bigoted people and a lot of other people who are, you know, similarly unattractive. Uh, and the grossest jokes in the world. And I know once you press play, you forfeited the right to complain about any of that. But I find that, you know, I used to like Borat as a sketch on the TV show because it was shorter. Uh, and I find that in recollection, I enjoy these things more. You know, like I, there's a scene where Tutar, the daughter, gets up and tells a bunch of Republican women something she's just learned about her vagine, uh, as they say. And in, rec in retrospect, that's really funny. Or there's a scene where Borat is kind of haggling with a guy who sells cages about what size cage to buy, keep his daughter in. <laughs> and individually, these scenes strike me as very funny in retrospect. But, but Mercy, I don't know. I was having a hard time doing like 90 minutes of this or whatever the running time of this film is. I think that's right. Um, and, and I'll say that, you know, Jacques, I know that you said that uh, the first Borat was your... Um, was the better one for you. I, I enjoyed this, but to your point, Colin, I enjoyed it in sections. I don't know what it says that though I was dreading watching the Chicago seven, I took a break from Borat some way, somewhere right before um, the political convention where he crashes, um, he crashes a political convention um, on a, Mike Pence, I cut it there and then went to go watch Chicago 7 because it started to get too much. And then I ended <laughs> off with Borat. And so I came back to it. There's something about, you know, just the irony of needing a break from Borat to go to something much heavier. <laughs> um, I, the, the redeeming factors for me were the the sweet takes, the people that he um, he gives some comical mercy too. Yeah, they're kind, of, they're kind of the free parking spaces on your Monopoly board. You know, you can kind of rest yeah. there for a second and not pay any moral rent while you're watching them. Yeah, Jacques, I guess you get the last word. Make it any word you want. Uh, well, I, I would say first, I, I think that 
the first Borat movie is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen and just a brilliant piece of, of political comedy. Um, and I, but I, uh, I didn't feel like this was overly long. Um, you know, I cut my teeth watching John Waters films, so it takes a lot <laughs> to shock me yes. um, and, and get laughs out of me at the same time. So uh, I would not discourage anyone from watching it except for my parents. All right. It's 95 minutes long, as it turns out, according to Mr. McPants. We have to take a break. But yes, a Borat subsequent movie, film, comma, long, long, long subtitle. Uh, we'll be back to talk about a very different vision of America. Or is it different? I see the crystal raindrops fall And the beauty of it all Is when the sun comes shining through To make those rainbows in my mind Then I sing of you sometime And I want to spend some time with you All right. So uh, Aaron Sorkin, whose West Wing series was the subject of conversation on a recent episode of The Nose, and he gave us a few good men, the American president, Molly's game, blah, 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 blah. Now has done the trial of the Chicago 7. This, of course, is, uh, is a historical event uh, in which protesters came to the Democratic National Convention. Um, there was tumult, uh, chaos, and fracases in, in the street. Somehow or other, they wound up on trial for causing it. Uh, and by they, uh, I, there actually are eight because Bobby Seale is, uh, at least initially, the eighth defendant. Uh, certainly the most... Uh, inescapable visual signature of that time. And I, I wasn't, you know, really a particular, I was young enough not to really be a full participant in it. But, you know, just everywhere you look, there was the artist rendering uh, of Seal strapped to his chair, his mouth gagged, chained to the floor. It was, you know, it was really the, the meme, so to speak, of that moment about what was really uh, going very, very wrong in America. So uh, Sorkin gives us Sorkin, which is to say it's a very densely written, interestingly um, phrased a bunch of scenes here. Let's hear a little bit of it before we hear from Jacques and Mercy what they thought. So here's a, a trial scene near the end with Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the prosecutor Richard Schultz and Sasha Baron Cohen, him again, as Abby Hoffman. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police, that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was going to be the first wish of mine that came true, I would have aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. All right. So, um, as usual, yeah, snappy, smarter than smart, uh, uh, pensive, uh, all the things we've come to expect from the Aaron Sorkin brand. So, Mercy, first of all, tell me why you were dreading this movie, and then tell me uh, where you came out. Yeah. So I've I've been I've been trying to uh, stay away from really heavy content um, these days. I think for obvious reasons, global pandemic, um, Donald Trump, pending election, right? There, there's just a few things that I oh oh I'm sorry I I also forgot racial and civil unrest throughout the country. Um, there's a number of reasons that I've been trying to stay away from two things: one, heavy content, but also um, you know tr black trauma porn. This 
threatened to me to be both. Um, and I think that what we see in the exchange with Bobby Seale once he is gagged and bound um, and chained to his seat was probably the height that I could tolerate. Um, where I came out on the end of this was this is this was a smart portrayal, um, and it was it, it, I, I sometimes dread um, historical retellings um, of of major events that have a justice lean to them or any kind of racial lens on it because I don't trust producers to get it right. I actually, I, you know, it is a nuanced talent to be able to tell a story um, without white saviorism sort of being the hinge that keeps it all together. Um, and Aaron Sorkin doesn't do that here. Um, there are moments that, you know, jo Joseph Gordon-Levitt's um, uh, uh, Richard Schultz, when he approaches the bench and um, requests a mistrial, which you know, as I understand, actually happened for me. That does that that doesn't flirt with white saviorism, right? Because white saviorism has to have the 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 angle of there's something you get in return for it. For me, I actually think that that's radical allyship, and that was really good to see done well on TV, um, on, in, in cinema. I think that there's been times when that's not done well, hidden figures a few times that's not done well, sort of infamously green book really isn't done well, but I think they hit it right on the mark for this one. Yeah. And I think as, I mean, it's a very sympathetic uh, portrayal of Richard Schultz, but it's kind of, you know, we were talking about following orders in the previous segment and he follows orders up to a point and then he just can't, he can't do, there's certain things he can't do. Right. Uh, and, and this is, I think Aaron Sorkin's core belief too that that people contain decency, that America contains decency. When you really put it to the test, you're going to find even some of the people that you didn't trust uh, are more trustworthy, and the institutions work better than you had feared they might. Uh, so, Jacques, uh, yeah, this is well. I just want to hear your thoughts, actually. Um, well, you know, I was a bit worried uh, not not about the movie, um, but about having to talk about Aaron Sorkin, because I realized as you uh, were, were sending emails back and forth that I really haven't seen many of his films or TV shows. Um, you know, I haven't seen Social Network. I saw A Few Good Men, but that was ages ago. Um, so my, uh, my um, knowledge of Sorkiniana, is that the right term? Uh, is is uh, somewhat limited. Um, so I didn't necessarily have a great sense of what to expect out of the film. Um, it's actually a chapter of history that I'm not really familiar with. So uh, in terms of becoming um, becoming more aware of uh, or you know and and seeing the ties to what's going on now um, and uh, the threat to free speech, and the you know the threat against the right to protest and whatnot obviously feels very relevant um, now, especially in the run up to this election and how we try to silence um, views that we don't like. Um, but I do think that um, judging from the story, that the direction could have been a lot grittier, um, and I think that the um, ending is. Uh, a feel-good ending uh, of a feel-bad situation, and it sort of felt more false as it went on, uh, in my mind. 
You know, I've been doing some gen- generational uh, surveying uh, about this movie. And so my son uh, watched it uh, and he had a really interesting take on it, which was uh, I said, what did you think of it? Uh, and he said his takeaway is it's a luxury to be able to protest, uh, by which I, I think he means, A, that it's clear that the white seven white defendants have a different status than Bobby Seale. Uh, Bobby Seale is spending a lot of time protesting the fact he doesn't even really have counsel. Uh, but also that, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, there's a way in which these guys are taking a risk, but maybe it's kind of a circumscribed uh, risk. I, I just would quickly say, I, so I've absorbed a lot of Sorkin culture never quite relinquishing my my doubts uh, about Sorkin. And, and I think one of the issues here is that, you know, he really believes in American institutions. Uh, he thinks that there's a kind of repeated cyclical, ed- cyclical, idenic fall of these institutions. They get in the wrong hands. Uh, and but but they will survive. They will they will be brought back and they will be brought back by words and, and people who know words. Uh, and <laughs> this is that, you know, only Aaron Sorkin could write a scene in which a character casually tass- tosses off the word ensorcelled. Uh, and and <laughs> there's there's a moment where Tom Hayden, who's played by Eddie Redmayne. We have to talk a little bit about the actors here. Tom Hayden, who plays Eddie Redmayne and Abby Hoffman uh, are they kind of reconcile over Aaron, uh, over Abby Hoffman's mastery of grammar and syntax and his understanding of a way in which Hayden has been understood, misunderstood based on possessive pronouns. And I forget whatever terms he throws out there and that your words really matter to Sorkin so much. And he believes words can save us maybe more than they really can. Big noun modifiers. Yeah. yeah, It was like, um, it was just, you know, and, and so I don't think he could persuasively write a radical, you know, like his Abby Hoffman is not as radical. I I actually met Abby Hoffman, um, but uh, he's not as radical as Abby Hoffman is because, Mercy, I do think Sorkin really believes in America and people and institutions. He thinks that they can go wrong if we don't take care of them. But he also thinks they'll take care of us if we treat them right, maybe more than many of us do here in 2020. Yeah, he's got a respectability politics thing going. Um, and this is this is even as someone who's a fan, right? I think, you know, I, I was a huge fan of Newsroom, sort of stereotypically as a, as a reporter. Um, and, um, you know, for me, you see it uh, poke out in moments where um, <clears throat> uh, Eddie, uh, Tom Hayden, Tom Hayden's character, sort of lashes out at the hippies in one scene, right? And it is a true and empathetic and sort of in your face lash out where he says, the issue I have with you is that in the years to come, people will remember the progressive movement um, through you, not through folks like me. There is a deep sense of respectability there, which I think right, runs through the vein of America that if you are not respectable, then you are not worthy of, you know, my time, my attention, or, or even the rights that you are guaranteed. Um, and, you know, for me, I mean, similar to your son there, my, one of my biggest takeaways here, and it was just sort of the thing that came out for me is this, this was justice theater, right? I mean, even the fact that Bobby Seale had to continuously protest the f- that he did not have repu- uh, reputation representation, um, right? But was forced to watch a trial 
happen around him where he could not one speak for himself or have repre representation there was justice theater right let's put on the the show the, do the whole game and the the whole um you know song and dance um and at the end whatever verdict happens we're going to say that we had a process and if it's the appearance of a process that's okay too all right. So uh, uh, on, on top of that, uh, let's hear uh, another clip for the film. I've got to grab my notes and make sure I set it up. Yeah, let's hear Bobby Seale uh, talking to Frank Langella as Judge Julius Hoffman. Completely amazing performance. You're going to hear Yaya Abdul-Mateen. Uh, the second is Bobby Seale and Mark Rylance, who in my book can do no wrong anyway, as William Kunstler. You wish to address the court? Mr. Seal? Yes, I have a motion. I will I... hear you, Mr. Seal. Just a moment. Mr. Seal, do you have a motion? I, Bobby G. Seal, have a motion, pro se, to defend myself. I'd like to invoke the precedent of Adams versus U.S. X. Rail McCann, where the Supreme Court... All right, is... that's enough. Where are you learning these things? Does your young friend, Mr. Hampton, have a background in law? Your Honor, the other defendants would like to join in Mr. Seal's motion. Are you now speaking on behalf of Mr. Seal? No, Your Honor, I'm speaking on behalf of the other defendants. You're standing right next to him. Why don't you just represent him? Because I'm not his lawyer, sir. If I understand Mr. Seal this last month and a half, and I believe I have, he is not represented by counsel. Overruled. I am being denied Mr. right now Seale, my constitutional will you be right for will legal you, representation. Will you be quiet? You have lawyers to speak for you. No, he doesn't. For those of us who enjoy actors, good actors doing what they can do, and one of the nice things about a Sorkin script is, you know the words are going to be good. They they may not ultimately ring true for you or me or, or whoever, but the words are going to be good. They're going to be well-crafted. takes a lot of pressure off the actor. So we're going to we see, yeah, some of these older actors like Langella and, and certainly Rylance, who I, you know, always amazes me, and even Michael Keaton in kind of a small role as Ramsey Clark, just turn in these, I mean, just one really great performance after another this uh, to me anyway this was very well cast and very well acted whatever other doubts i might have had about it oh jacques you're supposed to react to that oh i'm sorry excellent point colin <laughs> um, uh what are you having a jeffrey tubin uh, moment over there or something <laughs> i um i had to at the end of the movie i was like who was uh, what's the name uh the car uh, the the defense attorney William Kunstler. Yeah. I was like, who is that? I know I should know who this is. And then I'm like, oh, it's Mike Rylance, Mark Rylance. And, you know, he's, you know, a hugely um, important actor right now, uh, particularly in the theater world. Um, and, uh, you know, the performances across the board are, are really great. I know that you may have concerns about um, – uh, the Abby Hoffman performance. I don't know if that's in the writing or the performance, but, uh, and I'm not sure I'm answering your question. <laughs> I think the, you know, um, all the parts are there. It's to me, the big issue really is, is the direction. Right. The I, mean, what, I mean, Jacques, just stay with us for a second. One thing I, you know, I, I do feel that is, you know, Sorkin doesn't direct that often. He mainly writes. And I don't think he has a, 
an ability to give this thing the kind of visual sweep that it would probably need. There are some exterior scenes of the rioting and stuff, but it mostly feels like, you know, a kind of 12 angry men type closed room uh, TV court drama as opposed to uh, a big ass movie. Yeah. And I, you know, it was, uh, I, I felt like I better bone up on this before we talk about it. So I, you know, went and was reading about the trial and it's interesting because they, they said like that the trial happens in a wind, you know, in, in a windowless room. And like, how would that have felt if it was even more claustrophobic than what we got, where it was a sense of more kind of, you know, our traditional sense of a monolithic uh, courtroom. And, uh, when I was reading about what um, some of the antics that the defense put up in terms of people that they brought to the stand, I'm like, you know, why did they hold back on showing how the attorneys for the Chicago seven or eight, depending on whether or not you're counting in Bobby seal, um, you know, had turned it more into a circus than it are, than it's revealed on the, on the film. Why did they hold back in that regard? Right. So I kind of feel like they could have gone further in a lot of, lot of directions well i think abby hoffman's answer to the answer to the circus accusation would be well you started it um so yeah mercy you get the last word uh, i'll do what i did with jacques just any last word you want to say before we go to break yeah i think listen it's worth watching i think you know if if folks particularly folks who who know the the story of um the black panthers who are familiar with bobby seal and and um and fred hammond uh, hampton sorry fred hampton i would say one thing that I learned during watching this that I didn't know, I didn't know that Fred Hampton was killed during this trial, mm-hmm. right? These were, these were um, two incidents that I had full awareness of, but I didn't know that they were um, overlapping in that way. Um, it is a good watch. It is, uh, it'll, if you are skeptical of the justice system, it's, it reinforces that skepticism in some ways. And if you aren't, skeptical of the justice system and if you are a full believer i would still say watch it because um it it might for you um force you to see how much of a privilege and luxury protest actually is all right we have to stop there i've already screwed up the clock i will take a quick break we'll do some quick recommendations and then we will say farewell All right, quickest thank yous ever. Uh, as usual, Cat Pastors running the board, making the show hum. Jonathan McPants produced this episode. We're back next week with a lot of election-related coverage. Uh, now back to our panelists, Mercy Quay and Jacques Lamar. Uh, they'll each make some recommendations. We have a total of three minutes left in the show. Mercy, go ahead. Okay, so um, I'll make it quick. Uh, the Cosmos, um, uh, Seth McFarlane and Neil deGrasse Tyson team up again for season two of um, the Cosmos. It's available now on Hulu. And um, the other thing I'll say is uh, Twilight Zone. Uh, if you haven't watched it for any reason and, and you have uh, access to CBS, all access is I believe what it's called, the streaming service, um, the Twilight Zone, Jordan Peele's take on the original series is available now. The old ones are kind of amazing, too, uh, actually. And you see all these yeah. actors who are about to, to click. Uh, just quickly, uh, 20 seconds, explain what Cosmos is. So uh, the Cosmos is, well, this time around, um, a 
retelling of, uh, geez, what's his name? Carl Sagan's original book and then series um, that takes the viewer through um, both Earth side and um, uh, intergalactic uh, storytelling of the origins of the universe. All right, Jacques, you have the floor. Okay, I'm doing a double diva uh, endorsement. One is uh, Mariah Carey's memoir, but listen to it on Audible to get the full experience. It, um, it's much more entertaining, interesting, um, and her backstory is really quite fascinating. Um, and then Ariana Grande dropped a new album today. I've only listened to a bit of it. I, I don't love it, love it, but I do love the fact that um, she is not a person who takes five years to put out a mediocre album, that she is going to take six months to put out a mediocre album. Uh, and that has gems in it. So uh, anyway, I'm endorsing uh, her productivity level. Well, at least watch also the video. Is it Position? Is that the name of the song? Where Position. she's yeah. she's the president, and she's uh, it's a really kind of interesting great video. It's a great video and kind of perfect for the moment uh, in the way that the, these two movies are, too. I'll just quickly just, uh, you know, I couldn't adore Tina Fey more, and I wound up uh, watching the David Letterman interview of her uh, on his Netflix special. I know he has a new season out. This isn't the new season. And she's just amazing. She handles Letterman so well. Uh, and she handles herself so well. She is so appealingly normal and also so appealingly creative and thoughtful that uh, the time just kind of flew by. Uh, I obviously uh, could not like Tina Fey more than I do. Anyway, uh, thank you very much. We'll be back next week. And the next time you do the nose, we do the nose. The world will be a different place or appallingly the same place. Woodbury, getting on New Britain. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.